Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Brad Gooch about his new biography of the medieval Persian poet Rumi, entitled Rumi's Secret, The Life of the Sufi Poet of Love. Brad, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm a writer. I live in New York City. I've written two other biographies, one of Frank O'Hara one of Flannery O'Connor, so both writers, as well as novels, book of stories, a book of poems, a memoir. That background makes it understandable why, you're, why you've written this biography of another writer. And yet, as you explained in your introduction, you, it was a very different project. You, you had to undertake a lot of study. What was it that drew you to Rumi as a subject? And not just... Uh, as a subject, but why undertake the level of study that you did in order to uh, write the biography? Well, you're right about study. I mean, it was sort of a labor of love, but I maybe underestimated the labor part when I <laughs> when I began. Um, but I was drawn to Rumi, I think, as most people were through the poetry. Um, I was staying at a friend's house in Miami in the early 90s, and on the bookshelf was a two-volume collection of translations of Rumi that I read. Um, And then in the mid-90s, I think it was 1995, one Christmas I received the same present from three different people, which was the Essential Rumi um, translations by Coleman Barks, which was a book that that created this great kind of um, Rumi craze almost. I mean, the the phrase best-selling poet in America is attached to Rumi. It's from that volume, really. And um, lines such as out beyond right doing and wrong doing, there's a field I will meet you there, came from this, these Coleman Barks translations. Rumi was taken up by the New Age movement. Madonna and Deepak Chopra were recording his poetry. Uh, but, but for me, it was more at the end of that decade. I wrote a book called God Talk, Travels in Spiritual America, and the last chapter was on Muslims in New York City. And for that, then I joined and reported on a Sufi group, um, Sufism being a sort of mystical interpretation of Islam uh, that Rumi came out of. And and this group, which was mainly young Muslim Americans, was led by Imam Faisal Raouf. And again, his main person was Rumi, but less the lyric poetry and more the talks of Rumi that have been written down by his students. So his dimension then as a religious leader, a spiritual figure, became more apparent to me. And and the group was made up mainly young Muslim Americans in their 20s and 30s. And they're from different backgrounds. Um, their parents had come from the Middle East, from from Pakistan, from North Africa, Europe, Iran, Canada, and 
and from them I heard more about Rumi's life and more about the you know historic or religious context. And I realized that most people didn't know anything about Rumi. Um, a lot of people were reading the poetry of Rumi at their wedding, um, but when I asked around, half the half people I would ask thought he was Buddhist or <laughs> knew nothing about him. Um, so part of it was my desire to um, give a face and a, some kind of context to this floating name. Also, I think I was drawn by this story of, I mean, he went through a great transformation in the middle of his life by meeting with a mystic named Shams of Tabriz. And, and that kind of midlife transformation from uh, celebrated enough, preacher uh, and teacher into the poet and mystic um, who we know Rumi to be was particularly fascinating to me. It was interesting to read about the depth of study you went into for this. You didn't just simply look at the writings about his life. You went and you studied Persian. You uh, you, you went and traveled to these uh, regions. I, I was uh, especially uh, uh, touched by your description of how you went to a market in Syria uh, mm -hmm. just prior to the outbreak of the war and how you met with someone. And in speaking with this uh, person at the market about how he was expressing his great passion for the poet. And I, and I thought it was interesting how, in that sense, you also, you know, expressing in the book your connection, not just with the poet, but with this very large fan base and, and how that helps us to illustrate in many ways his, uh, the, his legacy as a poet. Right. I mean, the, I, I said in the beginning, I maybe underestimated the labor involved in the um, part of that underestimating had to do with the, the language. I mean, I realized I had to study Farsi or Persian. So I went to two language immersion programs, one University of Texas, Austin, one University of Madison, Wisconsin. And they involved, you know, living in a dormitory for 10 weeks with your fellow students and speaking Farsi 24-7. Um, some, most of them 19 years old. I was a lot older. Um, and, um, it, so it was an unusual experience. I also had a, a tutor, uh, an Iranian-American writer named Maryam Mortaz, who then, I guess her role sort of grew through in the writing of the book to become kind of a co collaborator in translation because I translated the poems and the writings of Rumi that, that I used in the book. Uh, and besides that, the, the map of Rumi's life extended 2,500 miles. Um, he was born in Central Asia in 1207 and wound up living most of his adult life in Konya in what's now Turkey, where he died in 1273. Um, but the, the path, of, you know, following this path of his life um, was was you know, absorbing and interesting and also, um, and, and mainly the, the, the path existed because, um, Rumi's family left Central Asia when he was young. It's not clear if they were just going on Hajj to Mecca, but while they were away, Genghis Khan and the Mongols, the terrorists of their time descended and destroyed the land of his birth, really, and all these great cities of Samarkand and Bokhara in, in Central Asia 
Um, and he was basically then they were displaced persons or or migrants or fugitives um, and wound up then in in Konyan, what's now Turkey. The this the, the my journey um, also got me into a lot of. I mean, I, I suppose also in the beginning I had a kind of maybe Orientalist fantasy of going back eight centuries into this moonlit, mystical, poetic past. And and actually I kept smashing into more contemporary geopolitics than in any book that I've written. I mean, you mentioned being in Aleppo, Syria, the day that the Syrian civil war broke out. I was in Tajikistan where we now believe Rumi to have been born and and visiting his village was sort of intercepted on my way out um, by these guys with, with assault weapons and taken off to a kind of Midnight Express style prison um, in Tehran. My camera was swiped from me and this official tried to get me to follow him down into the Ministry of Justice. And so, so constantly I was kind of coming face-to-face um, with contemporary politics, which in a way is, is suiting because Rumi lived his life in a very um, tumultuous and chaotic period politically and historically. And we are, we're not even there yet in terms of the, the feeling of worlds falling apart that was happening around him. And that sort of made it all the more fascinating um, that... Out, that out of it came this incredibly, you know, luminous kind of poetry and spirituality, and not just the Rumi, but of other poets who were alive at the time and other Sufi mystical thinkers. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more as to his family background, particularly uh, the influence of his father, who, in, uh, as you describe it, loomed very large in Rumi's life. Yes, yeah, so we came from a traditional religious Muslim family, and his father and grandfather had been preachers and teachers. Actually, probably no one called him Rumi during his lifetime. His name was Mohammed, and then when he was five or six, he told his father that he was seeing angels, and his father sort of encouraged him in this by giving him these honorific sorts of titles, Code of Vanguard, Jaladuddin, which means glory of the faith. And then when he was an adult, he was basically known as Molana or our teacher. Um, and so his, the, the influence of his father then was great. And he, he, his father actually kept notebooks that we still have, um, kind of diaries and, Rumi as an adult would read these. Um, he inherited the disciples of his father. And yet finally, when I, you know, I talked about this kind of midlife transformation is that then he wound up at a certain point um, going beyond uh, his father, who is still in a sense a traditional religious leader and becoming this more inflamed um, mystic poet. That inheritance is a very interesting one because you, uh, for a good part of the first half of the book, it's as much about his father as it is about him and how Bahá'u'lláh was under, uh, was basically experiencing this great arc upward. And mm-hmm. when he dies at the age of 80, 
he hasn't really dipped. It's so in a, so he uh, Ruby experiences this rise with his father and is educated by him. And then when his father dies, Rumi, as you describe it, inherits uh, this position at the madrasa and, and a lot of the, and the students that his father had cultivated as a result of this reputation earned over many decades of being a, a jurist and, and a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he definitely, I mean, you see this great admiration and love for his father. And the when when I mentioned that the family found themselves as migrants, um, when it was actually Baha Vallad who was invited to come to Konya, which was then the capital of the Seljuk Empire in what's now Turkey. And the Seljuks were a Turkic Muslim um, tribe that started eventually in this empire. And but but Turkey at that point was the outposts of Islam. Most of the population were Christian. They were Greek and Armenian. When I mentioned that no one called Rumi in, Rumi in his lifetime, Rumi really means from Rome. And it was referring to the old Roman Empire or the Byzantine Roman Empire, and Turkey was part of that. So Rumi, by living in the, the what was thought of the outer um, lands, um, gets called then gets called from Rome, really. And then the name even has a shadow of meaning Christian, since most people from Rome were Christian. The But they were brought, his family was brought, especially his father, um, to teach then, uh, you know, Islam and a version of Islam that, that would communicate with this population and also others. The, the main... In Central Asia, where Rumi was from, it was mainly Persian, part of the old, great old Persian Empire at that time. And so during the destruction by Genghis Khan and the Mongols, scholars now say about eight, there was an almost genocide of the Persian population. So the Seljuks then sort of imported these teachers, preachers, poets, artists um, of this this kind of high culture in their mind. And Rumi's father was very much a part of that. So actually he wound up in the later part of his life, um, more influential, famous, revered, than much more so than he had been earlier. And, and Rumi then was very much set up to follow in his footsteps um, and, and did. Um, so, he had posts at four different teaching colleges. He was known as a charismatic preacher, and and then had sort of taken on the disciples of his father, most of whom were people who, like him, had come from Khorasan, the old <clears throat> the land of his childhood, um, into into Konya and Turkey. You describe how throughout these travels. Rumi is getting an education, and he's also uh, a you know a, adhered to the Sufi faith. And I was wondering if you could explain perhaps both uh, a, a bit of Rumi's education and also uh, that relationship with Sufism, because it, as you explain, it a lot of his his early career is ends up being challenged at, at, uh, later on when he has this friendship with Shams. 
and mm-hmm. how it ultimately leads him to embark upon a very different course for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Sufism is basically covers um, all sorts of mystical interpretations of Islam. And, and so it's not, I mentioned before about Sunni and Shia, um, these two main differences within Islam, but they're really a disagreement about who should carry on from the Prophet Muhammad, whether, whether the power gets passed on through family like a monarchy or as the Sunnis feel then through, through the choice according to how you follow the path of the prophet. Um, but, but for all, in all these um, different manifestations, uh, Sufism can, can exist. And so the emphasis of Sufis tended to be on a more intimate relationship with God. They stressed the parts of the Quran, um, such as, um, I am as close to you as your jugular vein, that, that sort of emphasized um, closeness and intimacy. And they also used music, poetry, and song um, in, in religious practice. So that, you know, that's basic. And they also could, were controversial and could get in trouble. Uh, so there were famous Sufis in Baghdad uh, centuries before Rumi who had said things like, I am the truth or glory be to me. Um, which sounds as if they were saying that they were God and got them executed or in trouble. The the explanation for that within Sufism is that they were emphasizing complete loss of self in in God. Um, but that, Rumi, when you mentioned his education, he went very much with his travels. So along with the misfortune, in a sense, of being displaced from the land of his childhood, he had a kind of tour of the medieval Islamic world at a time when, you know, a great amount of philosophy, art, architecture, learning was going on. It was a, it was a, it was a high period, culturally speaking and religiously speaking. And he was in, you know, in Baghdad, in, in Mecca, then in Damascus, in Aleppo, in college, basically, madrasa. And these would also be in Arabic. So he was bilingual in Persian and Arabic and and had an incredible education in that sense. Um, And it makes the transformation all that more remarkable because he was basically a great intellectual and scholar and, and then sort of threw away learning or... Um, or shifted from this path of knowledge to a path of love and the heart and away from writing sermons and fatwas to writing poetry and using you know, music and song in, in his religious practice. But all of these practices were always under debate. Um, and, and so there's, you know, he was always um, pushing, you know, at the boundaries and limits of, of what a religious or spiritual life could be like and what poetry, what you could say in poetry or how you would write mystical poetry. What was it that 
brought about that shift? That's an easy question to answer. Actually, it's, it's um, one person, Shams of Tabriz. So when Rumi's in his late 30s now, um, in Konya appears this singular figure, Shams of Tabriz, who's about 60 and was an itinerant mystic who had gone around the Middle East studying with the main religious teachers of his time, including probably Ibn Arabi, and, and comes to town, and he and Rumi have this electric sort of connection and meeting. It's like if you go to Konya, it's a place where they supposedly met, it's still marked by the shrine, looks a bit like a bus stop, but um, so it's lived on almost, the importance of this connection between the two of them. And Rumi, even though Rumi then at this point is married, has children, has a community of disciples, has teaching posts, he goes off with Shams of Tabriz and they seclude themselves for three months and then they reemerge and then seclude themselves for six months again. And, and in this period, I mean, Shams of Tabriz is really encouraging him in shifting from this kind of intellectual academic um, clerical, respectable life to to the path of the heart, and and he actually teaches him then this this whirling dance, which we associate with Rumi. And af- really, after his death, around him in almost the same way that the Franciscans rose up around Saint Francis of Assisi, this Medlevi order rises up around Rumi, put in place by his son and grandson. And the center of it is the whirling dervish as a, as a spiritual practice. So Shams of Tabriz is encouraging him in all, in all these ways of um, giving up reading and scholarship. Even they're both ex- these extraordinary, extraordinarily learned guys. Um, they, the encouragement is towards not depending on, on books and learning and speaking and acting more from the heart. So this is all the, you know, among the effects of Shams of Tabriz. Shams of Tabriz is also though, trying to encourage Rumi to give up his great respectability, and and so to do this, he has he he has him go to the Armenian neighborhood and buy wine and bring it back through the streets and wine is forbidden in Islam. So there's always this um, playing around with unorthodoxy in a way, as a way to give up respectability almost and, and move more towards this Sufi life which emphasized poverty and, and meditation and prayer um, and and all of this causes, though, a lot of upset because, I mean, Rumi's not 18 years old. I mean, so it would be one thing to choose a, the life of a poet and mystic at that point. It's another when, you know, he's in the middle of his life and has these responsibilities to family and community. And so those years of Rumi's life were very much about trying to to... To, to find his way um, through this major life change, um, while also in some way still respecting his father and the um, traditions that he had inherited. 
that family tension really stands out, and it's on both those levels. You uh, you describe how uh, early on is when uh, Shams encourages Rumi to not just give up hit the sort of academic approach, the intellectual approach towards uh, you know you know in his career, but he's also encouraging Rumi to. Uh, stop reading the the, the diaries and and, and uh, notes of his father, and mm-hmm. and, 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 it is, it, and I don't you know you, you don't really get too much into psychobiography uh, and, and argue that there's some sort of you know father displacement here, but it does get to the degree to which there is this tension that then is also exists not just between uh, the, in terms of Rumi's relationship with his now deceased father, but also mm-hmm. Rumi's sons who have this. Uh, who had this very uh, uncomfortable relationship with Shams and, and, and really seemed to disapprove of his role in Rumi's life. Yeah, there is this great tension um, that exists. It's part of what's great about doing biography in a way is we have these poems of Rumi and, and you know, there's a lot of uh, joy and peace and light in them. And, but it's kind of fascinating um, that he lived in times that were so demanding and then had a life that that had a certain amount of conflict in it, um, and increasingly so as as he got older. The um, but yes, I, I mean psychobiography. You're right. I, <laughs> I didn't really do it, but there's a clear way. I mean, in which Shams of Tabriz is like a therapist, and <laughs> and you know basically um, sees Rumi as encourages him in a way to find his voice. It's, you know, really to find his own voice. And, and in this, you know, in a sense is saying, but you're not, um, just a preacher and a jurist, you're a poet. And the, these, you know, poems are eventually triggered in Rumi come out of this, out of this relationship with Shams of Tabriz. So, so, so in a sense, he, he's, he's finding his authentic self. The the relationship, though, I mean, you mentioned about with his sons, also his community and all of Konya, in a sense, get get involved in in this. And part of it is, I think, that if you, I mean, if you were at central casting and wanted to find cast a spiritual teacher, I don't think you would come up with Shams of Tabriz. I mean, he's a very irascible kind of misanthropic. Guy, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. He's very interested in Rumi and not in anybody else. Um, so this only adds to the to the tension of Rumi kind of disappearing um, from family, school, and and community. People you know, blaming this on Shams of Tabriz. Also, their their relationship was difficult for people. I mean the. Um, you know that the Shams of Tabriz would walk down the street and people would mutter under their breath or even supposedly um, flash daggers at him sometimes. And then you have to think, well, what um, created this amount of of anger um, or may, at least mixed feelings about Shams of Tabriz? One of Rumi's sons um, dutifully follows his father and. Likewise, as a kind of disciple of Shams of Tabriz, and the other son, um, very much the opposite, is horrified by what's happening to the family brand. I think, and 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 blames 
um, Shams of Tabriz for this. The it's I think part of it is that there was you know with it, it was a traditional culture. Uh, there was um, plenty there you know the idea of a Sufi master having a young boy who was following his example and for who and, he, and that he was teaching him and there was this love between them um no one had a problem with that it was sort of coming out of ancient greek civilization with socrates and plato where there was an erotic component and a uh, a component of of learning between young and old that was part of persian culture the something about shams of tabriz and rumi was much more disturbing and i think it was actually the sort of equality between them so shams of tabriz is in many ways a traditional um teacher and rumi his student but also rumi was 38 years old and was a was an established religious leader already at this point and so there's an equality between them shams of tabriz at one point complains I have to know what are we? Are we student and teacher? Are we friend and companion? Rumi records someone saying, people saying, we can't tell who is the lover and who is the beloved. So in a really hierarchical sort of society, the, the, we have this friendship, companionship um, between these two men that, that seems to break the mold in some way. And, has, it seems very modern to us, has a kind of parody to it, but is complicated and and unusual and and sets off um, or only adds to the kind of tension and conflict that you brought up. I think nothing better <laughs> illustrates the nature of the dynamic and, and uh, in, perhaps in some ways answers the question as to the uh, sort of the nature of the relationship than when Shams leaves. And you describe there are these two periods at which uh, he leaves uh, Rumi. And it, it really, at that point, a, a lot uh, in Rumi's reaction and, and, and also the fact that, that Shams does leave uh, twice, that you, you really see uh, some of the other aspects of the relationship really coming to the fore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the the poetry that we have of Rumi, especially that we associate, are about the the joy of this great transformation of this uh, sort of aha moment between them. Um, there was one, you know, Robayat four line poem: "When your love inflamed my heart, all I had was burned to ashes except your love. I put logic and learning and books on the shelf and learned the art of poetry and song." So you can see that there was this um, remarkable sort of breakthrough in terms of true identity for Rumi and maybe for Shams of Tabriz as well. But but because of the impossibility of the situation, Shams of Tabriz disappears at one point uh, without telling Rumi where he's leaving. He eventually returns, and then he disappears again um, completely. We really don't finally know what happened to Shams of Tabriz. There were rumors that he had been murdered by, by Rumi's son and because of this jealousy. And this is possible, not likely. 
but he definitely does lead without a trace. This causes an incredible meltdown from Rumi, and he looks for him everywhere in Konya, and then eventually goes to Damascus looking for Shams of Tabriz. And but most importantly, during this time, comes to rely on this whirling dance that Shams of Tabriz had taught him. And it's almost a way of holding on to his sanity as well as his connection. And and then begins to use poetry to, to again, um, be connected to Shams of Tabriz and to also work through the um, way in which human love and divine love mirror each other. And that becomes his great sort of theme. And so the way that he does this, I mean, there are different things, but one thing in, in to remember now, he hasn't really written much poetry before. At about age of 40, um, all these poems we know of Rumi starts writing them. And, and by the time he dies, when he's 67, he's written about 3,000 ghazal, which are like sonnets, about 2,000 robayat, which are these four-line quatrains, and a six-volume ep- spiritual epic in couplets called the Masnavi. So, I mean, he's a kind of genius for one, one thing. Um, and But he's very much, I mean, the, the, this, it's, his, it's his lifeline, in a sense, his poetry. Um, one thing he does, and he does these innovations, um, not just because he's trying to, to be a clever new poet, um, but, to, but, but to use this to work through um, the, 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 the conflict presented to him by the disappearance of Shams of Tabriz. So one thing is in Persian poetry, there's a convention called the Takalos, where the poet puts his name in the last <coughs> line of the poem, and Rumi instead puts Shams of Tabriz's name, so that when the poems are first collected, they're called basically the collected poems of Shams of Tabriz. Um, so Rumi's not just saying he's inspired by Shams, he's sort of saying Shams is writing these poems through him. Also, the name Shams means son in Arabic, and so it's a, it's a you know, kind of pun going through the poetry when he's writing about Shams, is he writing to Shams of Tabriz, is he writing about the natural son, or is he writing about the eternal son, God? And in, in Persian, the pronoun u can mean he, she, it, or God. Um, this is a game then that, that Rumi plays sort of to exhaustion. I mean, the, I mean, it, it's the, it's what's important and different about his poetry. I think F. Scott Fitzgerald says somewhere that, that the intelligent person can hold two ideas, opposite ideas together in their head at the same time. Um, in a way, you have to do that with Rumi's poetry. You, you have to hold together human love and and divine love, um, and because he writes about about the spiritual life and quest in the language of of this romantic poetry, and it allies with his feelings about Shams of Tabriz. So that's really the way the the poetry works. What sort of reputation does he have in the community during this time? Ha- has he been rejected? Have has he been embraced in this new role? Is 
you know, to what degree is his poetry celebrated by his contemporaries as he's writing it? Well, his poetry is very important in the, um, in his community. The and it becomes then a a, a way of teaching. Um, supposedly, I mean, after Shams has died, he has a uh, someone who's much younger, Hossam Ludin, who goes around and writes down all of Rumi's poetry. And supposedly one night, Hossam goes to Rumi and says, well, you know, all of your disciples, instead of reading their Sufi manuals, are reading these poems by Attar, like Conference of the Birds. Um, why don't you, O Molana, write your own poem? Um, kind of teaching poem called Masnavi, a poem about spiritual life for your students. And supposedly, then at that moment, Rumi takes out from his from his head scarf um, this page on which he's written down the already the first sixteen lines of a poem that is what Hosam Adin was asking for, and it's the and in the right rhyme and meter, and it's the opening of the Masnavi, which is one of the more famous openings of a poem in world literature. Um, Listen to the reed flute and the tale that it tells, how it sings of separation. And, and that's really Rumi. I mean, Rumi's always somewhat singing the blues. I mean, this idea of uh, separation, Jodai in Persian, which was also the name of the film that won the Academy Award two years ago, Separation, the Iranian film, so it's still in the culture in some way, that this separation is at the center of his poetry, and it becomes increasingly for him not just separation from it from friend, but the human condition of being separate from God. I mean, when you so when you ask about how it was accepted, basically there become then Masnaviris. There are Quranic reciters um, in the Islamic tradition who can recite the Quran. There also then become Masnavi reciters who can recite Rumi's poetry. So, so during his life, I mean, in in that world, it's you know it was very um, important. And then I think one reason that that it remains, while well, so much else has been lost from that culture is that you get a Mevlevi order after his death and everything is kept um, and preserved. And then, and then as the Mevlevi order spreads, the, the, the poems of Rumi spread also. So, you know, so in that way, an important revered figure, but he was also remains then a controversial figure. When he returns to Konya after he accepts the death of, of Shams of Tabriz, he takes off his kind of north silk robes and turban that the traditional scholar would wear and puts on a simple blue woolen robe and a dark blue um, head wrapping. And that becomes his, his clothing until the end of his life. And it's a, it's a Sufi kind of um, way of dressing like a monk, like a Franciscan monk. And, but also it was the color of mourning in Persian culture, this dark blue. So, um, you know, this very different figure who is in many ways beloved around Konya and 
going into the Armenian neighborhoods, different religious neighborhoods, preaching to packs of dogs. And, um, <laughs> and so lovable in that way, um, but also gets in trouble. I mean, there were fatwas brought against Rumi in his lifetime for using musical instruments in, in religious practice. So there was this, so this tension between a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam and a more mystical Sufi interpretation was present then as it is still present at the moment. And also Shams of Tabriz had a fatwa brought against him for seeming to drink wine, wine also forbidden in Islam. Um, so he was, you know, pushing the envelopes in, in ways which had caused Sufis to be executed in other times and other places. Um, but through the happy accident, I guess, of um, being in this kind of outpost empire a little bit of the, um, the Seljuks, Seljuk Turks, and, and in, you know, in a way having this kind of charm. I mean, the same or the same poems they were listening to that we're listening to now. And, you know, so there was something um, obviously special about Rumi, which, you know, allowed him a kind of protection during his lifetime. Uh, after his death in uh, 1273, uh, did his reputation uh, sustain itself, or did it? Uh, or was there any sort of period at which it lapsed or lay fallow before it was picked up later on? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it, no, it definitely lasted um, in throughout the culture in many ways. And I mentioned that it was preserved in these Medlevi lodges. But the, the Seljuk Empire, Konya, um, the Caliphate, which the uh, ISIS talks about now, which is in Baghdad, was, was, was destroyed, the Caliphate earlier, by the Mongols, um, who took the Caliph, who was both Pope and King, and put him in a sack and, and stampeded him with horses. Um, so if you read the poems of other poets at the time, there, there was this real sense that, that that it was the end of Islam, perhaps. And um, then the Seljuk Empire falls within a few years after Rumi's death. Um, all that could easily have been completely lost. Rumi's is preserved by the Mevlevis. And then at a certain point, um, the different Europeans... Um, come across his poetry usually in Istanbul, and then the German Romantic poets pick up on Rumi, like Goethe. Um, then the American transcendentalists, like Emerson, pick up on Rumi. Then the English Orientalists um, do, and then now the, I mentioned the American New Age movement in the 1990s. So he keeps having um, this life that. That, that keeps re, re, you know, reviving itself in some way and, and, and remarkable in that way. So, so throughout, the, you know, many, throughout the world, Rumi is, is be, the poetry of Rumi is beloved and some places even more so than others. So very much so in India, in Iran, in Israel, in Europe and America, and maybe a little less so in Arab countries. Um, but, but you know, at this point, um, as a kind of, and certainly in Turkey, beloved figure. So, so um, 
so global in the in a in an enduring way. It seems very appropriate considering that he lived in the context of his time a very global life, very well traveled, and and it it speaks to I think sort of a, a cosmopolitanism. That, that, yeah, that there was a cosmopolitanism also at that time. You know, I mean that the um, all these communities that you're reading about in Baghdad and Konya are all you have Christians and Jews and Muslims living together. I mean, they were in different neighborhoods, <laughs> um, and there were tensions, but there was a lot of exposure um, to each other. So at Rumi's funeral in Konya is uh, still remembered as being remarkable. And part of this was that besides the traditional Quranic reciters, Rumi had singers and dancers whirling and reciting his poetry. And also in the procession were Christian priests and Jewish rabbis who were reciting psalms. Um, at a certain point, the it was a big crowd scene, this funeral. At a certain point, Rumi, some of Rumi's followers basically had felt that their funeral was being taken away from them. Um, and had it stopped, the governor had to intercede, the parvane, the Christian priests and the Jewish rabbis brought in, um, and and the Christian priests said, well, you don't understand, you don't know how much time he was spending with us in the Armenian neighborhoods or at the monastery of Plato, Greek Orthodox monastery outside of town, you don't know what you had there. Um, so there was all, and then so the conceded and the, <laughs> the funeral went back and made its way by sundown to the Rose Garden where Rumi is buried in his shrine, still has 5,000 visitors a day today in Konya. Um, but even then, there was another, it was the, the inner, his inner faith message um, while coming out of his religion was remarkable enough to get that kind of reaction. And, and, and part of his endurance and importance today remains the way in which he's seen as an interfaith icon. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Right. Well, I know I'm resting. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I am doing, um, still doing translations of, of Rumi's poetry with Maria Mortaz, and, and I tweet them on at Rumi Secrets on Twitter. Um, turns out the lines of Rumi are just are perfect for for tweets. I mean, if you've been alive now, you could easily be doing you'd do very well with the 140 characters. So 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 that's what I'm doing, and then mulling over what to do next. Oh. Well, I hope the project that you do next is uh, going to be just as uh, you know interesting, but hopefully not quite as de- uh, demanding as uh, Rumi's uh, has been. Yes, um, I have to think it through. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well uh, Brad Gooch, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you.